If you've ridden on public transport over a number of years, it might seem like printed material is on the decline. After years and years being surrounded by people, immersed in newspapers and books, you're likely seeing more and more people cradling smartphones, tablets, or laptops, playing video games, watching downloaded on-demand programs, listening to music, using their camera as a mirror, or catching up on work. If you look a little harder, though, it's not so hard to see all sorts of material traces of an enduring print urbanism. No doubt you're surrounded by a panoply of banal or ambient texts. Signage, labels, and messages. It's probably also the case that not everyone's using mobile devices. Some are still reading books, magazines, or commuter papers. But even if some of the people near you are using a digital device to read online news or an ebook, are they not undertaking a practice that is archaeologically and genealogically, perhaps in Foucault's sense, connected with urban print culture? And is it not the case that the very act you are undertaking, riding on public transport, is itself only possible because of print? A huge system of expertise, bureaucracy, operators depend on a huge range of published and printed information related to the running of the system you're on. We could keep going, since the relationships of print and the city run deep. They only seem in decline when we think of print urbanism narrowly, or with our eyes focused mainly on our present circumstances. When we take the longer view, however, we can see how exploring the relationships of print in the city can help us explore some of the most elemental features of mediated urbanism today. The Mediated City is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we rethink media through the city, and the city through media. We will approach the media urban nexus both old and new, analog and digital, and most of the time, we'll avoid these kinds of categories altogether. Some of you listeners will also be students in my module, Media Digitalization and the City, in which we'll discuss and work on some of these themes in more detail. In this episode, the second in our series, we explore the rise of print urbanism. As should already be clear, the relationships of print media and urban life are potentially vast— an extremely challenging subject to encapsulate coherently or meaningfully in around half an hour. So we'll emphasize a few things for the sake of focus, some which certainly lean towards my own fascinations and obsessions in this area centered on the relationships of journalism in the city. But the key idea I want to get across is this. We still live in milieus rooted in print urbanism. Understanding how this is the case demands us to reflect on how we talk about specific media forms and the ways that they might endure and evolve as part of city living. A 
good starting point for thinking expansively about print urbanism is Shannon Mattern's 2017 book, Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, 5,000 Years of Urban Media. As the title suggests, this is a book that approaches urban media with an open mind, as well as with a wide historical and geographical remit. Mattern's motivation is clear to challenge the digital centrism of so many contemporary debates about mediated urbanism, around smart, ambient urban technologies, data-driven interfaces, and so on. Mattern doesn't think these developments are unimportant, but rather that we need to attend to the interweaving of the apparently old and new, the interchange of digital and analog. And this means paying attention to urban mediation, including and between code and clay or data and dirt. While the idea of a printed city might seem like a fanciful metaphor, Mattern takes a strong view on the deep histories of the print-urban relation. We're talking about more here than the relationship of print and the city understood by consulting historical printed sources, as so many architectural and urban historians do and do well. Instead, for Mattern, we need to direct our attention to how print is a product of the urban environment itself, while, of course, also exploring how print, as a media form, not just as a type of content, has shaped urban places and people. As Mattern puts it, quote, What's at stake here are nothing less than the shape and size of the urban public sphere and the state of public literacy. Determinations of who's entitled to see their words and images typeset and printed, and where that work is published and disseminated. How urban public affairs are made public, how publics understand and navigate their city, how a city's tools of administration shape its administrative practices, and how design tools shape urban form. In short, the city in print gives typographic form to urban perceptions, practices, and politics. End quote. Modern's approach to what might count as print is quite open-ended, but it's also, to a meaningful extent, anchored to the arrival of technologies for mechanically reproducing letter forms in particular. She makes clear that this history is layered, complex, and certainly doesn't all begin, as still-prevailing myths tell us, neatly with Johannes Gutenberg's introduction of metal, movable type printing to Western Europe in the 15th century. Yet, Mattern does arguably nod to Marshall McLuhan's notion, via Harold Innes, that the rise of mechanical printing and mass publishing led to an erosion of emotionally laden speech and an expansion of new kinds of linear and rational communication. One way this comes through is in Mattern's discussion of the rise of architectural theory and its implications for urban spaces. Drawing on the architectural historian Mario Carpo's 2001 book, Architecture in the Age of Printing, Mattern points out how, in the Gothic period, beginning around the 12th century, architectural ideas primarily concerned abstract geometric rules and forms, mediated by speech and mainly held in memory. Medieval architects or builders, seeking to expand their knowledge, would travel to hear about ideas or see other approaches, while conveying their notions verbally or through sketching. But by the 16th century, the rise of mechanically reproduced letter forms in Europe leads, Carper argues, to the eventual rise of architectural treatises, a new kind of architectural theory that communicated ideas with relative textual fixity, and in a form that, most importantly, could be circulated, 
and shared. Architectural forms, such as those given in the Roman tradition, for example, could be catalogued, described, and repeated at a distance. Mattern stresses this didn't necessarily make architecture suddenly homogenous everywhere. But it did facilitate a new kind of shared architectural discourse, with important implications for urban-built environments. While mechanically printed and published fields a professional discourse of reshaped cities, Mattern points out how cities themselves are at the same time key sites for the production of such publishing. Historically and still today, urban centers are the primary site for the generation of printed materials. Many of the most important urban centers of book publishing have deep material histories vis-a-vis the rise of print technologies. In Europe, dominant printing locales often coincide with some of the initial places to which Johannes Gutenberg's approach to metal-movable type spread. Similar developments were evident in the far less researched Ming dynasty of China, in which publishing arose in conjunction with the raw materials and social contexts evolving in places such as Yangtze and Nanjing. Perhaps above all, print has been significant in making possible new ways of orientating to the city as an arena of public life. Mattern discusses a whole series of ways in which print forms have qualitatively and quantitatively transformed the urban experience, from publicly displayed advertisements, notices, signage, and bills, to circulated maps, guidebooks, illustrations, atlases, and travel chronicles. These and other print forms helped city dwellers apprehend their urban environment, often with novel coherence, a sense of the city's boundaries, its inside and outside, its peculiar identity. This reached a new kind of volume, as well as ephemerality, with the rise of mass circulation newspapers. We'll turn to the newspaper shortly, but Matter's discussion of the newspaper building is a helpful preview of our coming episode on media architectures. As media historian Aurora Wallace shows, early newspaper skyscrapers, such as those on New York City's Park Row, in surpassing the height of the city's church spires, signaled their ascendance over organized religion. Newspaper buildings presented a new, secular, communicative order of the city, and situated directly across from New York City Hall, also the rise of a new kind of urban institution. And yet, for all this, it would also be deeply remiss for us to underplay the degree to which print media have also been fundamental in governing city life. This reminds us that media are not just means of public communication or experience, but also of administration and bureaucracy. As the status of print media grew, so too did the weight of printed documentation in government departments and agencies responsible for urban populations. Surveys. Forms, reports, records, lists, maps, and more. Throughout her consideration of the print city, Mattern draws out a series of homologies, structural resonances, between print media and urban life. And in considering administration, she draws out another, between paper storage and the skyscraper. The steel frame of the skyscraper made possible, as well as necessary, steel cabinets on its upper floors, protecting, unlike wooden cabinets, printed documentation against the risk of a fire. Quite apart from the information they filed, Matter notes, the filing cabinet embodied new media for practices of orderly, accountable, and efficient urban administration. (laughs) 
Let's turn now to the newspaper and begin by alluding to a couple of relatively well-established starting points. The first is a well-worn idea, usually associated with Benedict Anderson, that the mass circulation newspaper made possible the rise of the nation as an imagined community, a ritualized focal point for communities dispersed in time and space, for communities collectively aware of sharing the same world through those newspapers. Not only did the newspaper make possible the nation as an abstract public, but if you're Jürgen Habermas, it is the condition of possibility for rational public dialogue. The second starting point is the historical significance often ascribed to the penny papers that emerged in the early to mid-19th century United States. These newspapers were unprecedentedly cheap, typically one or two pennies, and hence accessible to a wide audience. And because of this, they addressed their readers not from a particular partisan viewpoint or as a particular commercial audience, as did many of the prevailing six-penny journals of the time, but as a diverse, differentiated mass public. A mass public who, for the first time, paid for their media by being sold themselves to advertisers. Less recognized within these well-established starting points is that these newspapers were inherently urban. As David Hankin puts it in his 1998 book City Reading, cities were not simply the contingent site of the penny press. As an emerging form of news production, they were its primary and novel subject. But the grounds from which the newspaper city nexus grew were not ready fertilized. They were conditioned, gradually, and the importance of the penny press per se, as media historian John Neroni argued in 1987, is something of an overstated myth. The urbanity of such newspapers emerged over decades, a process which took in various transformations in journalism, alongside a series of highly consequential technical innovations, such as rotary presses, papermaking machines, automated typesetting, and the telegraph. As James Carey points out in his well-known 1989 essay on the telegraph and ideology, the rise of the telegraph in particular led to an industrialization of news production. New techniques were required to manage and commodify what became a torrent of news information. This changed journalism as a nascent profession, but also journalism as an urban practice. Carol O'Reilly, in the 2017 edited book Communicating the City, details how journalistic observation in mid-19th century Britain was akin to a more purposeful manifestation of Walter Benjamin's wandering flaneur, a writer engaging urban life as embodied, first-hand knowledge. As I've discussed in my own work, the newsroom that developed later became a new urban site of the trade, through which journalism could stand apart in a mode resembling but distinct from the wandering flaneur, an attempt to understand and capture the evanescent city anew. For many writers, however, the urbanity of the early newspaper owed more to the direct relationship of its sheets with city streets. Not just a relationship of representation, but a homology in which newspapers and urban experience evolved, almost in sync. In his much-discussed 1858 essay on Charles Dickens, Walter Badgett remarked how, quote, London is like a newspaper. Everything is there, and everything is disconnected, end quote. Urban life, for Badgett, involves a mutual estrangement similar to the unrelated names listed in newspapers under births, marriages, and deaths. 
Readers moving, quote, from the broad leader to the squalid police report, end quote, which is to say between stories juxtaposed with seeming abandon in Victorian newspapers, is like the walker turning a city corner and finding one neighborhood abruptly replaced with another. Peter Frisch, in his 1996 book, Reading Berlin, 1900, similarly observes how Berlin newspapers generated, quote, a second-hand metropolis which gave a narrative to the concrete one and choreographed its encounters, end quote. For Robert E. Park, a leading figure of the Chicago School of Urban Sociology and also a former journalist, as Rolf Lindner recounts in his 1996 book, The Reportage of Urban Culture, suggested this relationship was ecological. In his provocatively titled 1923 essay, The Natural History of the Newspaper, Park argued that newspapers should not be judged as purely willful products of their proprietors or journalists. Rather, they were a natural ecological emergence of mass urbanization, reproducing, quote, as far as possible in the city, the conditions of life in the village, end quote. In his own study of antebellum New York City, Hankins sees this as a material correspondence between streets and public spaces and the layout of early printed newspapers. As he says, quote, Newspapers were not simply simulacra of primary urban experience or abstract representations of the real spatial contours of the city. Hawked, posted, traded, and read in public view, they had a palpable material presence in the street and the symbolic relationship between rectilinear city blocks and rectilinear print columns was reciprocally clarifying, end quote. Part of the story here is the sheer physicality of the penny paper. As Hankin points out, these newspapers were novel not only in price, but size. The New York Sun, one of the earliest penny papers, was initially only 8.5 by 11 inches. By comparison, six penny papers were blanket-like, says Hankin, as large as 24 by 35 inches. So, penny papers were uniquely pocketable. They could be bought on the go, carried along, stuffed into a pocket. This made possible newly private newsreading experiences. Although, as Hankin points out, stuffing a particular newspaper into one's pocket could itself be seen as a public act but it also made possible reading in novel public times and spaces, on the train, at the work break, during a lull in the day. With these observations in mind, we can see more clearly and directly the material grounds of that significant moment described by the likes of Jürgen Habermas or Benedict Anderson when thousands and even millions of people became aware of their mutual situation of consuming shared information. The familiar cultural trope of newsboys shouting, extra, extra, reminds us of the ways in which the newspaper's urban presence was made known to passersby not only via its portable physicality, but its audible presentation. Newsboys, many as young as seven years old, exalting stories, developments, and special features were a vector through which news was exposed, made part of the audible urban experience. As Hankin notes, while newsboys tapped into some of the traditional orality of the street crier, they did so in novel and complex ways. 
often bearing urgent, unpleasant news, they brought a new kind of immediacy to the peopled streets, vending the changing products of high-speed presses and news journals engaged in the most vigorous of competition. Complementing the audibility of the newsboy was the visuality of the newsstand. The arrayed displays of papers on newsstands, says Hankin, presented passers-by with a kind of situated social taxonomy of the city, one which itself became part of the urban landscape. Newsstand purveyors, notes Hankin, often curated their offering, for example, revealing just enough of the more notably sensationalist headlines amongst overlapping papers to entice customers to take note and perhaps buy a copy. Sensationalist headlines themselves can be seen as arising partly via the newsstand in this context. Headlines premised on their public presentation have extended into the 21st century, even if in more modest and certainly declining form. For example, with evening and commuter papers, such as the London Evening Standard. What's, what's in the newspaper today? Any good news at all? No, unfortunately not. The only good murder news mystery. Murder mystery. On the allotment. That's and exciting. the good news is Wenger might be leaving Arsenal. Oh. Five years too late, so hopefully he does go. Okay, may the best man win. Yes, definitely. <laughs> One widely remarked upon quality of penny papers was how they were far more dependent on advertising than their six-penny competitors. In the earliest days of penny papers, this often led to not-so-unfamiliar overlaps between advertising and news. Hankin notes that news and reviews could be bought by commercial interests. Penny papers, in their plentitude, were also in such stiff competition that their editorial content was itself akin to ads. It was often blatantly promotional, full of posturing and deprecation about competing titles. But Hankin observes a subtler and perhaps more significant quality of mass newspaper advertising. That, in many ways, ads were valuable. They provided a consumption map which operated as another way of understanding and knowing the city. Where to get things and things to do in this unprecedentedly complex and diverse environment. Ads were, in short, often informative and useful. They not only provided ways for ordinary people to eke out an existence, but ways to access forms of freedom through living and consuming the modernizing city. Penny papers were lively and diverse. In antebellum New York, they convened highly differentiated publics, linguistic, racial, ethnic, political, and social. Hinkins argues, however, that the available historical evidence suggests that the most consumed newspapers were those addressing New Yorkers as a generalized whole. As the former New York Sun's clock and thermometer on 280 Broadway proclaims still today, the sun, it shines for all. These were newspapers that grew into prominent urban institutions that were broad in reach, but relatively narrow in perspective. They didn't actually speak to everyone equally. Not at all. Rather, they presented a fiction of the city as a collective public subject. To a degree, a useful fiction. As Hankin puts it, Quote, the Metropolitan Press organized a community and a public around metaphors of space as well as metaphors of time, depicting people, events, products, and ideologies as sharing a crowded public space, strikingly evocative, but not accurately reflective of the city itself. End quote. Our emphasis here has substantially been on historical examples, but it's worth stressing that the print urbanism we are describing is alive and well today. It would be absurd to think we live in a post-print city. Any urban dweller would only have to look at the persistence of print forms all around them. 
As Shannon Mattern observes, today we are still witnessing, quote, a continuously unfolding story of the printed city, a city shaped by print, filled with print, governed by print, illustrated and immortalized in print, and perhaps soon printed itself, end quote. The myth of a declining print urbanism is perhaps somewhat peculiar to ideas and ideals relating to urban contexts in the West or global North. If we momentarily allow ourselves these oversimplified problematic categories, it may at least alert us to the wider diversity of urban print cultures around the world. Just now, you heard audio from Al Mutanabi Street in Baghdad, recorded in 2020 which Mattern describes for its long-standing and continuing status as a center of book culture in Iraq. We have spent some time discussing early newspapers, but mostly in New York. Relatively little is known, at least in the English-language literature, about the urbanity of journalistic practice in and through cities in the Global South. Ursula Rao's 2010 book, News as Culture, describes, via the burgeoning Hindi newspapers in urban India, local newsmaking practices quite different from, for example, the well-worn image of professional journalists interacting with city officials. In cities such as Lucknow, journalistic practices often entail brokering amongst a very wide range of grassroots urban actors, seeking different kinds of voice within India's rapidly emerging urban public sphere. The instance of print urbanism reminds us of the need to understand the geographical and cultural specificities from which we make our analyses, not to mention our tendencies to fall back on certain urban theories as well as media theories over others. As Jennifer Robinson argues in her 2006 book Ordinary Cities, if we read all urban situations through the experience of such a small range of cities, we seriously hinder our imagination of possible urban futures. And yet, the mediality of print urbanism today, around most of the world, is different than many of the historical junctures we've discussed. For instance, virtually all publications and printed matter we encounter in cities today has been composed with software. Indeed, the layout and design of much print material you see today would be difficult, even impossible, to compose by hand. Despite being printed, in the eyes of someone such as media scholar Lev Manovich, this material might still be considered or categorized as new or computational media. Perhaps we might say in some ways, print media is a fully-fledged dimension of digital urbanity. There's also the question of the evolving meaning of printing. As Mattern points out in her book Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, architects today are not only printing their plans from computer to sheet, with 3D printers, they can increasingly print polymeric models even the components used in buildings. Unassuming print forms such as flyers stapled to hoardings or wooden street poles remain some of the most immediate and tangible forms of hyper-local media today. And as Mattern says, these are enduring, quote, homegrown print-based systems of urban intelligence. But running alongside this, in my own research, I found how in complicated ways, these same print systems have seemingly inspired philanthropic programs working towards a decidedly digitalized notion of hyperlocal media. 
programs attempting to bring new technical capacities such as locational data, mobile devices, platform standards into contact with a range of practical fields such as journalism, small-scale software development, local government, and NGOs. The question that might arise here is, how should we talk about particular media forms like print in relation to urban spaces and places? And perhaps also, how much should we focus on forms per se? Recall how earlier we cited Walter Badgett's 1858 essay on Charles Dickens, in which he remarked, quote, London is like a newspaper, everything is there, and everything is disconnected, end quote. It's an evocative quote. But if you read beyond those 12 words, indeed, if you read that 1858 essay from beginning to end, what comes across is a critical and occasionally condescending assessment of Dickens' writing. For Badgett, Dickens should be celebrated for his skills of observation, his ability to detail the minutiae of the city. But Badgett clearly thinks Dickens lacks a facility for abstraction, lacks learned taste. He owes more to reportage than the literary order in which Badgett clearly counts himself. Putting some of the detail aside, though, what we might observe for our purposes here is that Badgett's essay doesn't just invoke a formal relationship with the newspaper in the city. It's also about the related norms or cultures that crop up around those forms. So perhaps it is that the urbanized norms or cultures of print endure as much as its specific forms. That's it for this episode. In our next, we'll be exploring the relationship of suburbanization and screens. So until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to The Mediated City.